Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. Avi, a lot of what we're reading in this week's Parsha, and we touched on it in last week's Parsha a bit, and we see it in future Parshiot, are this concept that Hashem is trying to teach us that there theoretically are not Elohim Acherim. And it goes about it in a very odd way, right? We're a monotheistic religion, Hashem is one, and yet we reference that Hashem says, I will punish all the other gods of Egypt. And in our first commandment, do not have other gods before me. And I think it's very fascinating that in a monotheistic religion, that is a huge component that gets brought up. And further, I would go to say, all of these different pieces is the lesson for the Jewish people, is the lesson for the Egyptians, is the lesson for the other nations around, because we know at the end, most of the nation of of Egypt is either dead or put into ruin, and so they don't rise up to the same level of power again. So, So help us understand what is the lesson and how do we kind of handle that whole Elohim Acherim piece? So let's start with the Elohim Acherim piece. I, I think that when we talk about the idea of other gods, and when God refers to other gods, Hashem is really saying those other gods exist in the minds of people. And therefore, Hashem says, if that is their perception and I need to address it, then here we go. So if Paro is seen as a god, right, then I'm going to have Moshe go down to the water where he is doing his business and remind him he is not a god. I'm going to uh, scare Paro with Makat Bechorot, where he thinks he is going to die because he is a firstborn. If you think that the sun is the god, right, because Ra is the god of the sun, well, guess what? Darkness blots out the sun for three days. If you think the Nile is the God, we're going to turn the Nile into blood. These are the kinds of things that Hashem is saying, you may believe thus, and I'm going to show you the alternative. Now, the second part of your question, so who is this for? Is it for the Egyptians? Is it for the Jewish people? Is it for other nations who may be watching Egypt as possibly the most powerful nation in the world at that time, I'm going to argue that the answer is yes to all of the above. Hashem specifically says to Moshe that many of these signs and wonders are to convince the Jewish people to leave Mitzrayim and to believe in Hashem. Let's remember where they were. They were at the end of their rope. 
and calling out to Hashem for assistance before Moshe arrived. This is to show the Egyptians why they must let the Jewish people go. And sure enough, by the end of the Makot, the Egyptian people are pleading with Pharaoh to let the Jewish people go. And finally, we see that when the Jewish people leave, for the most part, they are able to walk through the wilderness unmolested, with the exception of Amalek, and Amalek becomes cursed because they did not learn this lesson, they did not heed this warning that Hashem protects B'nai Israel. And so I think it is perhaps as much for the Jewish people to really believe, to really buy into this idea that Hashem is their protector and will be there for them as much as it might be a punishment or a warning or a consequence for the Egyptians and for others. So Akiva, we mentioned last week that uh, many of the traditional commentaries separate Makat Bechorot and talk about how it is a unique and special um, Maka in and of itself. It's a special plague. And it is obviously, because it's the last, the one that breaks Paro down. But there's a challenge here, in the sense that Paro, we know, might have let the Jewish people go earlier, but Hashem had hardened his heart. And one of the suggestions that I read was that Paro might have been willing to negotiate, to compromise. In fact, there are compromises he makes where he suggests, well, you know, take some of it, just, just the men should go. No, not good enough, right? Um, and, and that the suggestion is that he really needed to hit rock bottom before he understood the full consequence of what he had done and before he was willing to let the Jewish people go. So I was wondering if you might speak a little bit about this idea of hitting rock bottom. Is it a fallacy? Is it a truth? And tell us more about that. So rock bottom is a terminology that's used that basically suggests that someone has to hit their ultimate low before they'll make a change. Often in the recovery community, this is related to, with, to substance use and how someone is not willing to change until they hit their bottom. And as has been learned by many, unfortunately, in the recovery community, there is always a lower bottom to hit. So we often have people who say, well, I had to hit my rock bottom, and then they are in recovery, and sometimes, unfortunately, they may relapse, and then they hit again bottom. Yet that bottom is lower, which would suggest the first piece to your question of, is rock bottom a fallacy? Yes, because there's always a lower bottom until you end up in a casket. And I say that very bluntly on purpose, because the only time that you cannot get lower is in death. And so what we really try and suggest instead of getting to death, because there's really no coming back from that. We try and tr 
find what will work for that individual to get them to change. And interestingly, as we talked about last week, there are several of the makot that Paro does say, this is too much for me. We're on the right track. Obviously, it wasn't enough, but we're more on the right track with some of them than with others. And so similarly with other individuals who are struggling really with any sort of behavior, because this isn't just about substance use where we have the term rock bottom. Rock bottom is how much are you willing to lose before you make a change? And rather than it being losing everything, which again is what rock bottom suggests, how much are you willing to lose? That's a way that I phrase it oftentimes if we're trying to find out that motivation. And I may not phrase that in that terminology, but that's the crux of the matter. And we see this all throughout any kind of life change. We can think about this of how much are you willing to lose before you decide that you are going to start spending more time with your children? How much are you going to spend before you realize that money isn't what's getting you the things that you need in life and makes you happy? How many times are you going to yell before you realize that that's not working and you need to find a different way to do something different? Switch it over to the medical side. How many medical illnesses are you willing to unfortunately develop before you start to diet, exercise, take better care of yourself? How many times are you going to get rejected for life insurance before you see, hmm, maybe I should moderate the amount that I'm drinking and exercise a little bit more? All of these different things don't have to be to the point of uncontrolled diabetes where you've lost six of your ten toes before you get to the point where you make a change. And I want to be very clear that I don't want to give anybody the impression that I'm being cavalier about the severity of illnesses. Obviously, there's a lot of nuances there, especially with certain things where it's not that easy to change. And I think we can also take that from the Makot in that Paro comes to Moshe and says, no, 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 this isn't what I want. Please stop and, you know, I'll let you guys go. And then he ends up falling back into old habits because it is not easy to change. So, in part, the idea of rock bottom, yes, it's a fallacy. No one should have to hit the lowest of the low in order to make a change. And ultimately, there is always lower until you can't get any lower. And it is difficult to change. So finding what will motivate an individual to get them to change at the most effective time is really a great way to circumvent the need for it to be so serious that all you can do is go up. So Akiva, I definitely hear you about the piece regarding um, not hitting rock bottom and at the same time uh, I'll share a piece that was motivating to me. Uh, I'm not sure I'd call it rock bottom, but at one point I uh, weighed a bit more than I do now and went on an Israel trip with a group of students. And as we were climbing up a very steep mountain in Israel called the Jilabun, I, uh, I found myself needing to sit and rest 
and I was probably a little bit dehydrated, but also definitely out of shape. And when the 65-year-old tour guide came down to hold my hand and walk me up the mountain, I said, boy, I really need to go back to the gym and I need to lose some weight. And it was a motivating factor for me that summer. I lost about 25 pounds, but that hike and the fact that I knew I was going to take it again a year later um, and wanted to be in shape to be able to, to make it up that mountain in a way that made me feel good was definitely a motivating factor. So what can we use that will motivate us if we want to make changes? What you touched on there is something that you were able to identify. And oftentimes we do need something that brings us to that point. Different levels for different things, of course, right? The, I want to get more in shape versus someone who's struggling with a medical illness, psychiatric illness, substance use issue, which of course would be a psychiatric illness. But all of those different pieces... I think one of the most important things is finding it and becoming internally motivated. So it wouldn't have been enough had the students started making fun of you and joking, oh, there's, you know, old Rabbi Avi who can't make it up the hill, uh, because, okay, that might sting for a little bit and you go to the gym for a week when you get home and then you remember you don't like going to the gym at 5 a.m. and you move on from there. The difference is, is you found something that you said, I want to do differently. And then you put something into action. And for some, finding an appropriate, I don't want to say consequence, but actually, if you listen to last week where we talked about the difference between a just punishment and revenge and vengeance and so on and so forth... I will use the word consequence because I think it is an important thing to say, okay, I want to do this and I want to make this change. And ideally, before I suffer a consequence that I am not looking forward to suffering, let me find something that I can impart on myself as a boundary to help me succeed with my goal. And so as... You may have said one of those things that worked for you was, I don't want to have to be helped up a mountain by a senior tour guide. Other people may say, well, I really want to work on my anger or swearing. And so I have a swear jar. Something again. And, and when do swear jars probably work most effectively? Not when it's a quarter but when it's something you're going to feel. If you tell yourself, every time I lose my temper, I'm going to put $20 into the tzedakah box, well, it's great for tzedakah, and it also may be a little bit more meaningful and sting a little bit more where you're going to say, if I'm going to lose my temper, it's worth it to pay the consequence. And thereby you start to think before you act a little bit more. You start to decide, well, I'm going to do something different. I'm not going to... This isn't worth the cost of admission, so to speak. And you've made the change. You've made the, the decision before I lose my friends, lose my family, lose all the things that matter to me most because I can't control my anger. I will lose a couple of $20 
and realize I don't want to even lose that. So I think that it can be very important to be able to have something that you can say, I'm going to do this, or perhaps even a reward, right? I often also talk to people who are trying to find early recovery, and I think it's very important to be able to reward yourself, and it doesn't even have to be something big. It can be a small stepping stone reward along the way. Maybe it's a, I got a, I got a job, and I've been working successfully, and I'm starting to come out of the danger zone, so, okay, I get to buy myself a a cup of coffee. It's not a huge thing, but it's something to feel good afterwards. Or if you're working on losing weight and you start to see some success and you feel really good about yourself, maybe, okay, you know what, I'm going to buy myself a new shirt that's maybe a a little size smaller. Or I'm going to take a picture of myself to see the difference so that I can feel good about myself and feel motivated to continue. So I think a lot of times it's about balancing those consequences with rewards so that it pushes you to continue to change in that positive way. And again, helps you to prevent more major consequences later on. Avi, this week's Parsha seems to have a very different tone and be written in almost a very different context. It, as we would term now, breaks the fourth wall. It seems as if Hashem is not only talking to Moshe, but talking to us directly. And we really don't see this before now. We see it a lot afterwards in several instances, but it really does bring a very different change Tell us about that. So there definitely seems to be different voices speaking within this week's Parsha, and as you said, later into the Torah as well. And some have referred to this as the documentary hypothesis, or the JEPD, or JEDP model, um, which for those who are not familiar... It refers to the idea that um, there were multiple authors to multiple books or or, uh, multiple components of Torah, and that then they were redacted all together, one being the Yud-Heh-Vav-Heh God, one being the Elohim God, one being priestly directions, and one being Sefer Dvarim, the Deuteronomy. Um, And I want to suggest an alternative that fits, I think, better with our understanding of Torah as a guide to life and as a um, living document and, and, a, and a, a way to understand Torah, which is that when we speak to different people in our lives, we don't always use the same tone of voice We don't always use the same way of speaking. We don't explain things the same way. So if I am an adult and I'm speaking to a child who is five and I'm trying to explain something to them, I'm going to explain it at a developmentally appropriate level. And I'm going to use words that are 
appropriate for a five-year-old. And I'm going to use a tone that is appropriate for a five-year-old. If I'm having a, the same conversation with a peer, I may use larger words. I may use a very different tone of voice. Because if I use the same tone of voice that I use with the five-year-old, they would think I was speaking down to them. And that's not my goal. My goal is to educate them. Right? I may leave certain components out when I'm speaking to the five-year-old, but not when I'm speaking to the peer. Furthermore, if I'm speaking from a pulpit, and I rarely do so, but when I do speak from a pulpit, I may use certain language. I may make certain references. I may quote certain sources because of their authority to that audience and to myself. Whereas if I'm having a class, even if it's with some of the same people, I may not necessarily use the same tone. It may be more of a discussion. It may be more of a conversation. And so I want to suggest that Hashem is not necessarily different people, but rather Hashem is using different tones specifically to get our attention in the Torah. Yes, here at the end of Parshat Bo, Hashem is speaking directly to us. Hashem is giving us direction as to what we must do on a regular and ongoing basis each year to celebrate Pesach. And that's why there's an interjection here where Hashem speaks directly to B'nai Israel for all generations, telling us how we are going to celebrate Pesach and exactly what Hashem expects us to do in regard to some of those components. At the end of the Parsha, we shift even further from the Hashem telling us what to do and go further into the Hashem says, there are going to be these kinds of questions that get asked of you by your children, and these are how you're going to answer them. And obviously we talk about that in the Haggadah. We have the four sons. Three of them are right here in this Parsha. And it's just so different further even, because it's not just the what are you going to do and this is what you're going to do, but Hashem breaks it down for us and says, you're going to have different sons who are going to ask you questions different ways, and you're going to answer them different ways. However, right, some of them get the same answer, and some of them get a different answer, which is little unique and something, of course, that we use. But, Avi, tell us about that. So, this is one of the only places I can think of where Hashem is actually dictating a dialogue that will happen between two people. In this particular case, it is a dialogue that Hashem is dictating between a parent and their child, and we have codified it into the Haggadah so that it happens every single year. And we have put it into the framework of the four sons, um, and when we get closer to Pesach, we can talk about what those, those archetypes of those four sons might mean and look like. But I do want to talk about the fact that those questions appear here. And those questions belong to the Russia, 
right? What is this work or what is this service to you? Um, and he receives the answer. Because of this, Hashem did this for me when I left Mitzrayim. And then you have the Tam, the simple son, who says, Mazot, right, which is found uh, in, in chapter 13, verse 14. And it, there, the answer is exactly what the Torah tells us, which is, that with a strong hand, Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim from the house of slavery. But then we go to the She'eno Yodei Elishol, the one who doesn't know how to ask. So there is no question. And yet, what do we tell him? Because of this, Hashem took me out of Mitzrayim, which is the same exact answer that we gave to the Russia. And we might ask ourselves, why? How can you give the same answer to the child who is for the sake of this conversation, the, the bad or the evil child versus the child that didn't even ask a question. And I think it goes back to our previous conversation about how God speaks to us and how we speak to others. Because the emphasis on those answers can be very much based on tone of voice. It can be based, based on what word is emphasized? Clearly with the Russia, we're talking about because of this Hashem did for me a difference. Versus when we talk about this is what Hashem did for me when I left Egypt because I feel like I left Egypt and you should feel that way too. And so I think a lot of it comes down to not just the words that we say, but how we say them and the way that we mean them when we say them. We're recording this on January 1st, the new year of the Gregorian calendar, and we celebrate a new year. Many of us set New Year's resolutions, New Year's goals, things that we want to do differently. And consequently, we're also reading Parsha Bo, where we are preparing to leave Mitzrayim and be free. So whether you're going based on that or the New Year's aspect, we're in a time where we should be potentially discussing what behaviors do we want to change? What different things do we want to do? And so we'll leave you with this question. What's one thing that you would like to change about your current behavior? And what can you use from your past successes to see that you can achieve yet another goal in changing your behavior? Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding.